This is Felony Jacobson with ID360, and you're listening to the SME Stories Podcast. You are now listening to the next great small business podcast. Welcome to the SME Stories Podcast, where it is all about small businesses in Canada. And here's your host, Ken Alfred. Hey, everybody. Everybody, thanks for downloading the show. We got a great episode today with Melanie Jacobson of Integrated Design 360. ID360 is a sustainable consulting company focusing on green building project management and strategy-based consulting based in Menlo Park, California. They work with public and private sectors up and down California and across the United States to improve building performance and green building practices. Founded in 2011 by Melanie, ID360 is proud to be a certified diverse supplier. They are women-owned small business, which is W-O-S-B, Small Business Enterprise Certified, S-B-E, and Disadvantaged Business Enterprise, D-B-E, which are all fully certified by the state and federal government. Melanie is a green building and sustainable design strategy expert in the commercial and residential development sector. Melanie brings leadership in decarbonization, zero net energy, and zero net water design and implementation. She holds a Bachelor of Science from the University of California, Davis in environmental design. She is also a LEED, L-E-E-D, accredited professional certified as a green building code plans examiner and inspector through the International Code Council. She's also a member of the California Building Energy Consultants, the U.S. Green Building Council, Northern California Chapter, and the project, and also certified in project management as a PMI Institute. Melanie is also a versatile leader and innovator. She has a track record of creating measurable results that are both environmentally sound and cost-effective. She has worked with customers including Safeway Incorporated, Apple, Ritz-Carlton Hotel, Vantage Dana Center, and the City of Palo Alto, and the City of Menlo Park, the City of San Mateo, Los Angeles World Airports, and the San Diego County Regional Airport Authority. Now, she's very knowledgeable here, so now we're going to be coming into the environmental space here. So I'm really looking forward to chatting with Melanie, and I know you guys are going to learn a lot as well, especially all of the stories that she has. So sit back and absorb. All right, here we go. All right, guys, we have Melanie Jacobson from ID360. Melanie, how are you doing today? I'm doing great, Ken. Thank you so much for having me. No, absolutely. And just so I let the listeners know, this is, Melanie is our second U.S. guest coming here on the small on the SME Stories podcast here. So I, Melanie has a background. Usually this is meant for Canadians, right? So Canadian small businesses. But it's nice to see, like I said, like I said to the previous guest, a great story is a great story, regardless of geographical boundaries. So I'm glad you're able mm-hmm. to start here. So, all right, IG360, what is your story? Great. Thank you. Um, so uh, we got started um, in 2011 and um, it was a, it's been a journey this whole time. Uh, it's been a, a very exciting journey. I got started uh, when I went to school in Northern California at UC Davis and uh, studied environmental uh, policy issues and design issues and um, got started as an intern at the EPA, working for free uh, and learning about what it takes to get things done around environmental policy, green issues. And started a career um, in that field. And I got about eight years in and um, I worked for my last real job working for somebody with a W-2 was uh, for a environmental uh, consulting firm, an engineering firm that wrote uh, energy policy for buildings and 
just got to know the ins and outs of the industry. And that company sold to uh, a large Fortune 500 company. And that was a great time for me to launch. So that was uh, 2011. So that's when we started. And uh, it's been a journey ever since then. We started in the middle of a recession, which was an interesting time to start a company. Um, but uh, there was a lot going on. We're, you know, we're in the Bay Area. So there was a lot of uh, kind of technology-based architecture happening and got started on projects and working for clients and just really have started, you know, really started to grow from there. And um, and fast forward, you know, we've been in business now 12 years and um, uh, saving carbon and uh, uh, making it happen. So that's just kind of a high level story of of how we got started and fast forward to today. Okay, perfect. And I kind of read your a bit of the intro before about what your company is, but if you can touch on what do you guys offer in terms of services? Because I guess when you hear the word environmental consultant, that kind of cover a lot of different things. So to our listeners who are unfamiliar with it or just they only thought, oh, environmental consultant, they know everything about the environment. But yeah, the- right. <laughs> yeah, it's a big subject area. Um, so we're a B2B consulting company. Uh, we also do you know, business to government. So we work directly with government agencies to adopt policy. So we work a lot on policy projects, specifically for local governments that want to be leaders. They want to take a position in the community on sustainability issues. So we help them develop the build their building code, which is a very niche market of uh, folks that work on building code issues. But uh, so we provide consulting both directly to government agencies and then also to like large prime uh, contractors that have government government contracts. So it's all government related, um, United States based. Okay, no, that's pretty good. So and how do you currently run your business? I know there's, I guess in this case, I'm sure there's not, you, can, you can't really do this more virtually, right? I know for some cases you probably need to be on the ground as well, right? Or is there a bit of a hybrid approach, you guys, how you how you run your operation? Well, you know, it's funny because ever, you know, we actually started as a virtual company because most of what we do is on the phone and correspondence. There are cases where you have to show up to meetings in person, give presentations. Um, but all of that changed, you know, with the pandemic. Uh, the People want to you know, virtual related services. Um, so having, you know, virtual support became a really important part of our delivery process, which was a transition from, you know, traditional delivery. Um, but we were, we were fortunate enough to, you know, back in 2015, um, I made the decision to turn the whole company virtual. So it, it was a kind of a, a lucky, um, you know, good choice because then, the whole world turned virtual, you know, a handful of years later. So we operate virtually on purpose, which gives us a real benefit um, in this market, just because so many companies are not doing that. Or they're kind of just had to, had to figure out how to operate virtually kind of under the, under pressure, if you will. Um, but we operate virtually, we run, you know, we heavily rely on software to make our operations run. And um, that's, constant moving target but but we do go to client sites so we do have travel involved and um but yeah we were we're very virtual all of our consultants and um, educators are in their own homes and doing their work from home and and then we show up, of course to important meetings and conferences those are really important in our industry so that's kind of how our operation works pretty great and how big is your team right now 
So we have, we're a team of six and then we have, um, we have any, anywhere from 10 to 15 contractors helping us on various, uh, elements of the business at any given point. Um, you know, we are, uh, Silicon Valley, you know, we kind of are very influenced around software and getting things done efficiently and In Silicon Valley. eh? yeah, I wouldn't have thought so. Right. So. So, we, you know, we really have watched things that are going around on around us. You know, 90% of the employers around here are the big companies that you see, you know, the the large uh, tech companies. So a lot of what we've done is just kind of watched what's been happening around us and taken the best of what we've heard from colleagues and uh, and then applying it to our company, so that the the power of uh, watching and learning and applying is um, it's pretty powerful. It's pretty uh, pretty extraordinary opportunity. No, no, that that's great. I mean, and that, the fact that you've grown your team as well, so you have ten to fifty consultants or sorry uh, contractors. Now, are these are the ones going on site, or are they doing like maybe some administrative tasks? Or when you say consultant. <laughs> Yeah, mainly around the software, our software production, we do, we have a large enterprise training uh, platform. So that, and we've launched that in the last three years. So we, we basically took, you know, we're a niche market consultant, consulting firm. And what we did a few years ago is launched what we call ID360 Academy. So everything that we know, and what we know is very niche market, but a lot of, a lot of people want to know about what we know. And so we decided we're going to open our doors and share what we know. So we created this online training platform. Um, and and now we have over 30 hours of training on, available on demand online, completely scalable model um, that we're deploying throughout the U.S. Um, for mainly in our in the architecture, engineering, construction industry where we're deploying that. So, you know, really taking this uh, little giants approach hmm. to sharing what we know, uh, even though we're a small organization and using the power of technology to share that knowledge. So we can educate millions of people, even though we're just a small firm. Now, can anyone take these courses or do you have to be like, mm-hmm. you have to be a builder, or you have to be, you know, government official or anything like that. So any average Joe can just say, oh, I, I want to learn a little bit more about environmental or best building practices and all that sort of stuff that, that you have that there. Yeah, we have a whole intro series. So um, it's, you know, it's is is geared towards folks who want to apply the these concepts in the world. So, um, you know, some interest in construction or engineering design um, is definitely a precursor to the, the subject matter. But we have a whole introductory series. We want to bring everyone along, you know, to get just spread the word of sustainability and decarbonization. Uh, for the masses. Oh, excellent. So just to step back, actually, because I just want to understand. So what brought you into the environmental space? Like, What was it about it that kind of, you know, spoke to you to say, okay, because anyone can, when they go, especially for university or college, there's like, oh, I can pick almost anything. What was it about envir- the environment that really drew, drew you to it? Well, um, that's a great question. And so it was really so I studied, I got started, it's like I started in architecture. That's kind of what I thought I was going to end up doing, being kind of an architect, making these buildings happen. Um, and I started in that. When I first got, when I got my first job after my, in my first internship, 
I went to work in architecture, not in anything environmental, and quickly realized very fast that the older generation that I was learning from knew very little about this. Nobody knew what the talking points were. Nobody knew how to even incorporate environmental issues into building design. And so I got really clear that there was an opening in the market, right? The younger generation at that time, you know, this was 20 years ago. So, but um, at that time, um, there was an opportunity to lead. And I, I, it was at that time, I wanted to see at the table. I wanted to be part of what was happening. I didn't want to just be drafting plans in the background. And so it, it, I realized I could have a really big impact as a pretty junior person. And so I got, I just, I just went for it. And, you know, within a year's time, I was um, in charge of the, all of the green requirements for a school that was being built in Sacramento. And, and that was my, kind of my big first break as a, you know, in my career, this was like 2004, 2004 or five ish. And, and once I got to show my skills, I got to present uh, to the school board and you know, the, all the clients involved and coordinate all the different parts of the project with the architect and the contractor. I just, I saw the power that this could have and then also how it touched everybody that got involved with that project. And forever they would have the experience of what it would take to apply green strategies to a project. And so that project was a pretty pinnacle for me uh, in terms of realizing this was my passion, I could really make a difference um, just using my own energy, no pun intended, um, um, you know, energy savings uh, uh, to to really make a difference. So that that project really got me started. And, and it was that project that la- helped me land my next position, um, kind of doing this full time for a consulting, a large consulting firm that only did kind of sustainability issues for buildings. So that's, that's kind of, that was, that was the big launch point. Wow. That, that's really great to hear. Cause I, especially with the environment too, that is, and especially in, regardless of whether you're municipalities, provinces, states, whatever you want to call it, that is always a hot button issue for a lot of different uh, things, right? Because you see, you know, the, the challenge of trying to be more environmentally friendly or trying to be, you know, more energy sustainable, self-reliance. There's always a back and forth with, oh, it's either, either, or I'm like, okay, if, if, Regardless of your political stripes, how you feel about it, I think we could all agree that we only got one planet and we only got one Earth that, that we can deal with. We can't fly to another planet if this one suddenly goes under, right? So I think the way, I think we all have a similar agreement that, okay, environment does matter. I think the only challenge is either sides have different approaches to how to achieve those things, right? Is, I think that, is that what you're seeing, especially in the, in the, in the United States right now? Yes. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. So same here in Canada. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> I mean, the the business case, yeah, the business case for sustainability, green green building, the business case is there. Really about the right people learning about what the levers are. That's really the barrier because the science, the, 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 the technology is there, the deployment is there. Um, you know, there's some supply chain issues with you know, equipment, of course, but in terms of the strategy, it, there's no, there's no doubt that if, you know, we have the right business leaders on learning these subject areas, learning what it takes to make this happen. The business case is there. It's not necessarily political in this sense, right? It's, 
it's saving money. I mean, Wall Street has caught has caught on the last few years um, with you know there's a new kind of subject area called ESG, Environmental Sustainability Goals or Governance, um, and and this is happening. I mean, there is no stopping it. Um, the, the, and the business case is really leading it. You know, there's definitely some societal things going on, but in the background, the market is really leading this this effort. It's market driven, which is that's what you want. And then the policy, which is what we get involved in, tends to follow. So, you know, the policy is always kind of the last thing to the table. So the market takes off. Got to make sure the research is there. Got to make sure industry can support policy changes. And then the policy can follow. Uh, but it's pretty transformational what's going on in, in the marketplace. All right. Yeah, we're going to I'm gonna ask more questions about that. But I want to hit some of these other questions first regarding to the business that you're in right now. So sure. you're yep. at this point. So what kind of growth then are you are you seeing for the next year or so, especially in your business? Do you see it like a huge double, triple digit growth kind of thing? Or do you see it as a slow, steady approach uh, of now things? Because obviously everyone's now focused on the environment. They want to try to be more environmentally friendly and be more sustainable and all of that stuff. Huh? But uh, so how is it on your end? Yeah, so our goal um, is 15% growth each year for our consulting arm. Um, but for our training arm, you know, we're planning to grow 30% a year over the next five years. Uh, so a kind of exponential growth on that. We really want to become the, a training partner to all of all the industry leaders, make sure that they have the tools in place to train their people on what it takes to make this stuff happen. Because in a small consulting firm, we can only touch so many projects. There's a limit to how much we can do. It's a limit based on man hours, you know, human hours. And and with, with our training, we have exponential opportunity to share what we know, deploy our knowledge quickly, to actually make a difference for you know the future, future generations. Hey, do you need an error-free website? Do you need transcriptions that's accurate and on time? Would you like to remove noise from your video or audio recording? Do you need a spokesperson for your business? If so, we can help. At Northway Capital Group, we are happy to announce that we are now providing website testing services, audio transcriptions, and audio cleanup, as well as spokesperson services. We would love to help you on your next project. Contact us for more information at northwaycapitalgroup at gmail.com. Oh, that's great to hear because I think what's, what's really good what you just said, too, is that, you know, because I think for a lot of small businesses when they first start, they want to have like, man, if I can hit nail 100 percent of the market share and they want to land all these clients all here, you know, all this other thing. But then there's certain capacity issues that you have. You can't just take everybody. Right. So the fact that you're saying, OK, we, we, we can grow maybe about 5 percent from our consulting side. Which is great because obviously someone said, oh, I should try to grow it like 50 percent. And, you know, but you can only handle so much work at the same time. Right. Because I think you eventually have to start either not really turning the clients away or just more like we can't really work on your account now, maybe six months from now. But still being able to push, let's say, your, your online, your educational side going for that so that that's something you don't have to really try to, you know, reach out for, or, or so to speak, try to land new clients in that perspective, because then, you know, as long as you get the word out, people will start doing it and start learning it. So that does help as well. So it's very interesting that you mentioned that. So, all right, next question that I have for you. So in your business, what has been the biggest expense you guys have seen? Um, biggest expense, like capital expense? I'm leaving it open. Uh, well, 
Okay. Well, I mean, we're in consulting. So our business expense is, you know, human, our human capital. You know, we spend a lot on making sure we have the right people in place. Um, planning for that is also a big expense, right? So we're making sure who's our, who are our ideal candidates? Who do we want on our team? What kind of personalities do we want to gather together? What, what kind of personality does it take to make that happen? So we've spent a lot on planning to make sure we can get the right people in place to create the culture that we want in our company. And that is, um, so that's been our biggest expense um, by far. So, you know, you know, hiring the right people, training them, making sure they have all the support they need, making sure that they have the right benefits in place so they don't have to worry about that stuff and they can really focus on their work. So I would say that the, the human expenses, um, I mean, with any consulting company, that is true. I think, yeah. yeah, I think for a lot of people who thought maybe getting into consulting, that's going to be like a low cost of entry. And, and it can be in some cases, but there are some other things. Yeah. Like, are there any other, maybe other expenses that uh, maybe people who aren't in your space be like, oh, wow, you guys have to pay for that? Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, insurance is always, you know, a necessary um, expense, no matter what. I mean. Uh, that's, I would say that's one of, that's our second, uh, oh, it's like errors and emission kind of thing, you know, errors and emission. I mean, any kind of, there's, I think we, we hold like 12 different kinds of insurance. We're required to, for a lot of our contracts, hold these different kinds of insurances. It's just kind of the nature of, uh, what we do, um, in, in construction specifically Mm -hmm. when, whenever you're touching something related to that, they want to see a lot of insurances. Um, yeah, I mean, I I think surprise expenses are always like those, you know, things that you don't plan for, you know, equipment. We spent, we have a lot of technology related equipment, recording equipment that we have for our, our training academy, um, some of which we've got grants to pay for. So that was helpful. Um, but it's still an expense align item, you know, on the, on the P&L. So yeah, I would say that that, that those are also pretty big, um, unplanned, but necessary. Necessary evil, especially the jets. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Excellent. So how important is social media to your business? Now, this is not a social media channel by any means, but how important is that uh, to the success yeah. of your business? And what do you use? Yeah, I mean, in a, you know, in our world, um, LinkedIn is by far our most important channel. We use a, a we we do we're active on social media. We have been for quite some time, um, and um, and LinkedIn is really the channel where a lot of our community engages. Uh, so we find that that is our most important asset um, by far. Uh, but we you know Twitter is important as well, and a little bit of Facebook. But those are those are our three that we focus on. Oh, nice, nice. All right. So now we're going to talk about stuff within the industry itself. So I guess the first question I have is, what is your current opinion? On just environmental business practices, like what do you see as where that direction is going at this point? Well, I would say, I mean, in the larger market, and there's a big there's a big trend towards large companies, you know, focusing on environmental issues. There's a big gap in the knowledge at, at the senior level of, of management. Um, on how to deploy these practices. And I think that trickles down to all bit size of businesses that, you know, business is not an easy thing to engage in. To run a successful company is takes takes something that that is 
calls to go above and beyond in a lot of cases. Um, but it's really about how do we make sure that the environmental component is incorporated into, into decision making is really what it comes down to. And I think we're, that the market has taken off in terms of, you know, supply chain issues being analyzed for environmental impact. Um, certainly without the, you know, the reduction amount of travel that's happening now has certainly helped our environmental, our, our emissions. But I would say, you know, the Denver one is really that decision making and, and seeing where the, the dollars and cents can line up with the greenhouse gas emissions savings or that's really the goal is to make it simple and transparent. Yeah, I guess the simple part, too, because I guess for the average person, you know, they all have the same similar approach. OK, it's important. But I guess even for those, like you said, that whether it's from the government perspective or senior leadership in business, like getting the decision makers to really understand it, I guess, as you're saying, is, is sometimes a bit of a challenge, right? Because they might not mm-hmm. know exactly how to make it. They might know in general how to do it, but then how to actually change the business or change the, you know, the policy to try and apply those things is, is like you're saying, there's a big disconnect at this point. Like there's a big learning curve for them to under, really understand what's going on. It's not just simply saying, oh, we just have to put a recycling program in the office. Okay. Right. Or slap on some solar panels and we're good. Right. But there's more to it than that. Right. Oh, most definitely. Um, most definitely. And, 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 I think what's also missing and I think, but I think for eyes are starting to open is just making when you have certain choices that, you know, certain choices have way bigger impact on your greenhouse gas emissions, right? Like recycling a can versus, you know, renting a, you know, huge RV for the weekend. Those are different, right? So when you make those choices, um, it's it's important to see that there's a scale. It's not just a one size fits all, um, but there's a pretty big scale when it comes to that. So I think that we've got some work to do, at least in the B2C market, to educate consumers, um, you know, even business consumers on how these these choices affect the overall picture. Yeah. I mean, what what what, what uh, kind of really I found interesting, at least in Canada, I'm, I don't know if it's related to the U.S., but for all the recycling that we did, that we do, because obviously on our dailies, every Friday for me, when we have recycling collection, yeah, we're separating everything of, you know, paper here, cans here, green bins here. And, and the first thing, you know, you go through all this painstaking effort and you see them just chucking it into the same section of the recycling trucks. But what I, I did not know, though, what I did not know as well is that only a small amount is actually being recycled for whatever the reason. I don't know if it's because there are certain yeah. plastics that can't be recycled, which I think most people don't know because they thought, oh, plastic is plastic. Like those containers or whatever, they, they should everything's recyclable, right? But yeah, only like maybe 15%. I think I remember hearing that from a previous documentary saying it gets actually recycled. So that, that's very sad when I hear about that. Yeah, it, it, I mean, that's part of it. Well, I shouldn't say that there's... Um, there is a system in place for recycling. There's just we need more demand um, on the on the on the manufacturing side uh, for using these materials. Like, yeah, recycling plastic is an extremely energy intensive exercise. So there's a there can be a trade off, right? So you use recycled plastic in certain things because we have an unbelievable amount of plastic available for recycling but then you look at the amount of and we call energy use how intense it is to use that energy um to to do that uh that endeavor 
it's a, it can be a heavy lift. So, um, but you know, there are markets that, you know, especially around reuse that are kind of taking off or reusing certain building materials or, um, but, you know, that's kind of what we, our focus is, but, um, there have been some success stories with green business programs here in the U.S. There's there every major city has one. A lot of smaller cities will have these as well, where a small business can go and apply, you know, kind of complete a checklist, apply to become a green business, uh, and then uh, kind of use that as part of their marketing effort as well. So it's committing to these actions and and then using that as part of the, their business operation. Yeah, I mean, I heard the latest thing here in Canada, and then I'll, then I'll move on to something else here, was I think uh, I know for like beer bottles and beer cans, they have a little deposit thing where there's a nickel or a few cents. Yeah, I think from what I've heard, at least in Canada, and maybe it's happening in the States as well, where they're trying to say maybe they should apply that to all types of cans and bottles. So you like Coke or all those other or those plastic ones as well that you get you can potentially get a refundable thing there. Is that something do you see that as being effective or you think that could be? If I guess if some people think, oh, if I just if I just collect all this stuff, I can make a few extra dollars out of it. Is that just an incentive enough for people to at least, you know, instead of just throwing it in the garbage, which I still see, I don't understand why people still throw things in the garbage that are like things that you know are recyclable. But what's your take on that? Yeah, you know, I mean, those programs have had mixed results in the U.S. The 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 deposit um, on the cans and and bottles. Um, but overall, it changes the behavior. And that's the goal. The goal is to change behavior. And so I think if we are measuring that the behavior change is 100, I would give that those kinds of programs 100% because it gets you to think it's a monetary incentive. You know, it's a very human um, kind of practical uh, solution. Uh, which those tend to be very helpful. You know, any sort of financial incentives can are usually as a positive thing rather than like fees or fines. Those tend to not be so popular. So uh, I would say that those kinds of models are the way forward, figuring out how to incentivize, how to help help people pay for the making the right decisions, you know, help them finance it, um, that those always have better results than fines or, you know, yeah, it's almost like the stick versus the carrot, right? Like, do you want off the carrot or do you want the stick, right? So, uh, or in, the, in my Filipino household, it was always the slipper, but that's that's another thing together. So, <laughs> what is so? I guess from the when you hear the term environmental consultant, or when people think of that, yeah. what, when you deal with clients or something, do they have any misconceptions as to what you guys do, or is like, and if they are, what are those misconceptions that people might have? They're saying, oh, they're gonna tell me to remove all this stuff. We're gonna put, we're gonna make everything out of hemp or we have to put solar panels on everything and all this sort of stuff. So what are the misconceptions you hear when you talk to governments and businesses? Yeah, I mean, I think, yeah, I mean, definitely as a consultant, I would say this is true of any consultant. A great consultant trains, you know, teaches their clients the best way that we can help. So I would say that goes for any, any, and that's probably true of any small business. You want to tell your clients how you can help them and be really, really clear about that and what value you offer um, so that it lands in their in where they're at. Um, but, in, you know, specifically on environmental issues. Um, yeah, absolutely. It's really important to take this huge subject area and boil it down into tangible actions. That is the number one Uh because, you know, as consultants, you're a guy, you're leading, you're helping your clients achieve a certain result. And by creating tangible actions that can be addressed, 
um, it really creates the possibility for success. But somebody's got to be the one that does that. And the consultant really should be the one taking the lead on that. Right. Okay. Excellent. So last question before we get into tips from the pro, which is going to be another section here. Um, mm-hmm. Basically, for your business, what has been, I always ask this question almost often, what has been your biggest failure, but also biggest success in running your operation? Hmm. You know, I would say um, my biggest failure is hiring based on skill and not personality. We've we've had a lot of high, you know, I've hired a lot of people over the years and it took a couple, it took a couple of times of getting burned, um, not really burned, but getting burned, so to speak, um, of hiring someone just based on their skills rather than the, what they're going to bring to the organization as a person. Uh, and I would say that's actually the number one thing we hire on now. I don't even want to see their skill set until I see what what their personality is like, how they treat others. You know, can they because you can't teach that you can't teach somebody how to be a good person. I can teach somebody how to log into a website and, you know, take these actions. That is all trainable. You can't teach somebody how to be a good person. You can't teach someone how to write either. They got to cope with that. <laughs> <laughs> so I would say I would say that's been our biggest failure is just looking at the 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 kind of the technical skills rather than the whole package of who, what that person stands for in their life. Where are they headed for in their life? Does that line up with our goals? Um, these are just really kind of soft questions, if you will, soft skills that makes or breaks uh the company because one sour apple can bring down the whole group and then that takes time to restore and and so we take a lot of time to hire we have a very robust hiring process now to make sure we have checks and balances on who we bring in we are never fast at hiring ever hey you do you need a voiceover well look no farther northway capital group has your answer commercials and explainer videos avr and voicemail health and wellness Corporate training and e-learning, announcements, documentaries, and biography. Contact us on social media or email us at northwaycapitalgroup at gmail.com. Yeah, and I think that's a great point, actually, that you talked about, because that was going to be one of the questions I was going to ask, because I guess for something like this, you can be supremely tough, MBA, doctorate in environmental science, all that sort of stuff. But if you're basically a jerk, if you're basically a toxic person, right, because that's going to bring your entire culture down. And I think most people leave companies yeah. generally is either one, obviously money is always going to be an issue regardless of no matter what. But secondly is, is the, is the toxicity of the workplace. If it's just not a fun place to work at, or if you dread, if the first thing you dread is opening up your computer on Monday morning, because you're dreading to see certain emails from certain employees, that's not a good thing. That, that That's horrible. I mean, so I like the fact that you said it. I love, certain skills are teachable. Right. That they can learn these same things. But yes. if the person just doesn't gel well with everybody else, then we don't need to bring that on board because that's just going to cost us in the, in the long run. Absolutely. You know, and, and our our kind of our model is kind of a mentee mentor rule. So everybody in the, in the company has a mentor mentee. And when we hire them, it, the possibility of them becoming a leader in their sector, that has to be a possibility. And so by, by hiring on personality and really just having good people around, is this person a good person? Will they support their colleagues? Can they collaborate? 
is got to be the number one because they're, we're going to put them in front of clients and they're going to, you know, they are going to treat their clients the same way. So yeah, it's really power. It's, it's such a simple, it's such a simple thing that I really overlooked on my first, you know, when I was just getting started, well, I guess it's just worth looking at what does it take to get this done? Can this person do it? Well, yeah, I think especially when you first bring on your first few people, I think especially for a small business, especially there are a lot of solopreneurs that feel like, at least in the beginning, I have to do everything. So when they have to first get yes. that first or second person, they feel like, oh, let me just get someone in there. As long as they're somewhat comp- c- capable, they should be okay. But, you know, you got to be very picky with that. It's kind of like my old... Uh, old coworker that I used to work at a bank with, like he, he invests in, in real estate. And he's like, what he always told his clients that if you're going to invest in real estate, it's better if you're going to, especially do one of those buy and hold kind of situations, it's, you should have a year's worth of mortgage payments saved mm. just so you can take the time to hire the, to bring in the right tenant versus feeling like you have to take the first or second tenant right away or the best sob story. You got to put them in because then those ones can yeah. cause you so much trouble. Now it's time for tips from the pro. Right, so excellent. That's right. All right, so let's do our tips from the pro segment here. So, so this is now someone who wants to get into the space. So, Melanie, being the pro, she's going to give us some great advice on if I want to break, do what Melanie does. Here's what I need to know. So, question number one: What resources do you use personally to keep updated in your industry? Uh, definitely. Well, I use LinkedIn to stay close with my colleagues. I'm, I believe that staying close with your industry colleagues is the number one, uh, tip for success. So finding out who the leaders are in that industry and staying close to them. Um, but in terms of resources, I mean, in our industry, we have building green, um, is a industry magazine that has been around forever. And, um, I, it's our go-to for sure. Um, we follow all the EPA um, documents, you know, all the white papers that are been get, that get published by the EPA. Uh, out here on the West Coast, we have um, one of our, uh, you know, decarbonization is kind of a, a new term. And so there's some, a lot of publications coming out around that subject uh, from various groups related to government. So we, we follow a lot of those, but really those two that I, that I mentioned. Staying up to date on LinkedIn too is a really actually a powerful way to get news. Definitely have to have a filter. You know, not everything is like the same, but um, just hearing it kind of in that raw uh, sense from like a group of colleagues, you know, I've got like thousands of people I'm connected with on LinkedIn, but hearing the different perspectives from, okay, my, you know, my, my colleagues and leadership in like large architecture firms, kind of what their perspective is on things. And then my colleagues who are doing similar consulting work to us. Um, and then from manufacturing is, it creates a really unique, um, kind of online environment to hear, but we got to have a filter, of course. You got to have the filter. Wait, the internet could lie. No way. So <laughs> everything on you, everything you read on the internet is true. But anyways, no, I'm, I'm just kidding here. So next question I have here is, okay, all right, Melanie, where do I start in establishing my environmental consulting practice? Should I target like local politicians? Should I target maybe small to medium sized businesses? Which do you see as a good, I guess, to get your feet wet or something that can get short term wins first, right? Because I think landing that first client, because everyone wants like what you guys have, like the big governments and all these municipalities or these big companies that you have experience with. I think some of those, that might be the end goal of, for some, for a lot of people starting this. But what can the first person who wants to start, you know, where should I target mm-hmm. first? You know, 
I would, before even going after anything, I would do a lot of dreaming. Dream of what it is going to look like. What is this firm or company or whatever kind of firm you're starting, but specifically for environmental consulting, make a dream of what it's going to look like. Write it down. Put it on paper. Have it be a tangible thing. How big is it going to be? How much revenue is it going to generate? Actually have a picture of what is what is it going to be like when it's finally done, as they say. Um, one of my heroes is uh, Michael Gerber. He's been around the industry a lot, but business consulting. And that's, 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 we followed that model in a lot of ways, um, the EMS model. And, um, you know, I would say spend a lot of time, even if like a whole day, close the door, don't let anybody in and just free write, get a picture down of what that's going to look like. And then stick and then stick to it. You know, that is where you're trying to get to and then back out of it from there. So if you're trying to, you know, you know, target businesses to help them with their strategy, um, you know, we got to back out of that and get involved in getting involved in the industry, whatever subsection of the industry it is. Those industry association meetings showing up is the key to those because that's where environmental consulting lives at these industry association meetings. The virtual ones are okay, but the in-person ones, as long as it's safe, exactly. getting to those, meeting people and making, you know, creating relationships. So much of our success has been just doing that and, and getting to know people and being authentic about what, what kind of value you can provide. So, but in terms of landing your first client, getting out of your own head and seeing where other people's challenges are and listening to that and seeing if you can be somebody, if your organization can fulfill that, to meet them where they are with that challenge. Interesting. Oh, that's really good. So, mm -hmm. all right, next question here. So I guess, how do you get, like, this is also a question I'm kind of curious about. So when you go to clients, whether they're, you know, govern B2G or B2C, or B2B, sorry, how do you get to know what they have that you know you can, imp that you can help them with? Do you know what I mean? So obviously you can, you know, if you get access to blueprints on certain things or you know what they're currently doing. So how do you get that kind of information if before you, so you can start to sell yourself on that? Cause I guess that's the one thing I always kind of curious about. So how do these consultants know, you know, like if I work for a bank, for example, how do they know what's going on within our bank so that they know they can have the solution for us? Like, so how would you, how would a new person or how would you say people were, what's the best way to do that? It seems so simple, but listening is a very powerful part of this, right? Listening to what is happening <laughs> and then, you know, getting out of your own head and listen actually going on in the world and seeing where is the needle being moved right now. Don't look at what's already happened. What is happening right now where you can step in and make a difference? And what does it take? You know, you may have to partner with some experts um, to fulfill that need. But just that the power of listening, because people say what they need usually. Um, and and so getting the information is not necessarily about research, although that is an important part of this. But listening to showing up to those industry meetings and listening, it will, it presents itself. It does present itself. Interesting. Okay. So who do you collaborate with? You said you have some people on LinkedIn, like you said, yep. fellow colleagues or other. do you work also with like, you know, hazardous waste technicians or other engineers or anything about other like law or anything like that? Who do you actually collaborate with? So when you have your, you know, 
your knowledge that you're going to be potentially giving to a client, who do you get those ideas from or who do you work with to get more information so that you can present it to the actual end customer? Um, well, definitely. I mean, over the years, it just, it naturally happens to meet colleagues and just create that relationship. Uh, so I've worked with, you know, hundreds of other consultants over the years, just, you know, you work on a project and you get to know those, those, those people. Um, you know, and a lot of those people I met when I was working for somebody else, and then I kept those relationships going. I mean, I think that is a really important part of the human element. And it's kind of the theme of this interview now, right? It's like this human element to um, to making it happen. I mean, that's really what it's all about. And yeah, I mean, I have colleagues I've worked with over the, you know, I originally met when I was a junior person at, at the architecture firm and we've stayed in touch. And now they, we're, we are such good friends. It's keeping friendships. They need something. They call me in a week. We can help do it together. So, but you can't necessarily do that with somebody you don't know, right? Mm -hmm. You got to know somebody in order to say, oh, I know this person who can help you with that. Or, you know, let me send you this person, you know, send them it your way. <laughs> A lot of it is, is that. You have a small business story to share. The SME Stories podcast is looking for entrepreneurs to share their tales of success, failure, and everything. If you're interested in being a guest on our show or know someone will be a great fit, please contact us at northwaycapitalgroup at gmail.com. That's northwaycapitalgroup at gmail.com. Yeah, and I think what you talk about too, like knowing the right people. So I think for some people, especially who want to get into the space, if they feel they don't know enough, because, you know, that, that's that's... I think paralysis by analysis, I think we can both agree, scares a lot of people from starting their own thing. And I think during the pandemic, especially, I think that's when most people started. That's how this podcast started, because I just heard about all these places closing. And I thought, OK, let me talk to the story. Let me hear the stories of the people who are. And now everyone's the whole gig economy. Everyone's like trying to do their own thing. So that's why I was kind of curious yeah. about that. So I guess what I'd also advice you'd probably give to people, let's say, if, if they're you know scared off from trying to they wanted they believe in the environment. So do you think in. Before to get their confidence level in this space, even working for, let's you say, working for someone like yourself or other types of things that have an environmental piece to, so they can really sink their teeth in so they can, you said, they can establish those relationships of, to eventually that, okay, I think I've learned at least enough that I can present ideas to try to help all these other businesses or these governments to actually improve everything. Is that, a, is that even a good, yeah. a good strategy as well? Definitely play the long game. This is not a short-term gig, right? This We've got a lot of work ahead of us as an industry. You know, what I did um, was I found the best person in my industry, what I wanted to do. I found, I figured out who he was. I listened to everything he ever wrote. I mean, he's a big leader in the industry. Um, I've networked my way into working for his company. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> and I learned a ton and he's, you know, real... Um, you know, well-known person in what we do. And so I, and I work, you know, I ended, I worked for free, you know, when I intern and just be in the conversation, be part of the landscape. Even if you're not talking or doing something right at the, at the beginning, just go be part of the conversation. Let, listen to what these technical terms are. Even if you don't know what they are, just let them rest in there because it will come alive. It will. It just takes time. It's very complicated. And the industry is changing quickly. So we need a lot new, we need fresh leaders. This is just part of it. There's just not a lot of, you know, there's not enough firms like ours to do this work. So showing up, I would say that is the number one. Show up, become part of the landscape. 
Oh, that's getting involved in and in, in, in the industry associations as well. That's a really big part of this because that's where leaders come together from all parts of the industry and talk about challenges. So um, I would say that's really important. No, that's great. It's really good to hear. So, all right, I've got a couple, three more questions before we get to the more fun stuff here. So then we get these last three out of the way here. So you, you mentioned earlier about special insurance. You said you have like 12. So for someone starting off, is it is those 12 just related to the U.S. and California? Or are there some like general ones that regard, you know, obviously, you know, we talked about that. That's going to be one of the insurance ones. What are the other ones that you have, especially in the environmental consulting space that uh, someone should look into or should know about before they say, yep, I want to start, I want to get involved in this space? Sorry, can you repeat the question? Sorry, my mistake. Um, yeah, so I meant, you mentioned earlier on in, in the interview here that there's like you have like almost 12 different insurance policies that you have. Oh, right? yes, yes. So for someone's yeah. wanting to get into this, you know, is there what are the ones, the main ones that they have to understand that they have to mm-hmm. So we mentioned errors and emissions was one, right? Yeah. What, is, what are some other ones that most commonly someone getting into this space will most likely have to get? Great question. So it, it depends on, so in the government, it depends on the agency. And um, so when you, government projects um, have a very kind of traditional process that they have to go through is just that's just the nature of it and so there's a a document that's released from an agency when they want to hire a contractor or a consultant called rfp request for proposal and so that will be a pretty thick document depending on the agency every agency is a little different but in there there'll be a session called insurance requirements and every project is a little different every agency is a little different um but there's you know there's probably six different layers of liability that you might, that, that a a government agency might ask you to carry. Just, just, this is standard. It's not anything. This is just part of the market. Uh, And, and so that can have a number of different permutations of what it looks like. Uh, So then, you know, uh, so the, the general liability and professional liability, that's kind of a different um, type of liability insurance. Um, commercial auto insurance, there's like four different kinds of those. You know, is it, you know, if you're going to be driving somewhere with a to a client's office, they might want to see certain insurance if you're going to be renting a car. I mean, that it seems like a s- simple thing, but it ends up becoming a really important part of the delivery. And so if you can't meet those with your insurance, you're not qualified to to propose on the project. So or to, you know, compete to win the the, the job. So there's there's that. And then, of course, all the just like standard workers compensation insurance, you have to show all of that. Um, and then I mean, there's, yeah, those are the main ones, I would say, for sure. The liability is the biggest one. For, it yeah. just depends on what you're doing, how how much liability is associated with that. What we do is generally pretty low um, compared to, like, contractor that's building a high-rise or right. you know, whatever it is. That's a, It's a kind of a different thing. But the, it's really important to understand that. And my, you know, my insurance broker is part by far one of my most important um vendors because we have to meet all these requirements and stay in compliance and things change. So keeping up to speed on what that is and learning what that is, is pretty important. Excellent. Oh, that, that's good to hear. It's, it's great people because I guess most people have thought about, oh, okay, I need something for like general liability or something like that. But when you talked about like even commercial auto, they're like, really, I have to pay for that as well? Or, But I guess, yeah, like when you're dealing with bigger jobs from bigger companies, governments, whatever, they're going to have all these things. And I used to, and, and you know, mm-hmm. 
for the financial institution I, I work with, they, you know, from when we do RFPs as well, there's a lot of stuff that they have to go through for any supplier who even wants to, like you said, bid on a on a project. So that's, that's very interesting to hear. So, yeah. all right, what are the most common, what is the common billing practices for environmental consultants? So is it an hourly fee? Is it a flat fee? Is it a retainer? You know, especially when someone's trying to come up with this. So, you know, they have the idea because I, I find that some people who are very good at the technical side of it, they're not the greatest from the business side of it. So they don't even know what to charge or how should they be paid? So in your opinion, what do you think would be, what advice would you give to someone starting this? Well, I mean, that, I think that is, you hit it right on the nose. I mean, there's no doubt that our, our educational system does not, it does not prepare people to start businesses, which I think is a big, huge miss. Um, but that's a subject for a different um, podcast. <laughs> um but, you know, in terms of for environmental consulting, it's typically a hourly rate with a not to exceed amount. That's usual. That's pretty standard. So an agency or will or or a prime vendor even will just have a certain budget that they're allowed to spend on a particular project. And you present your hourly rates and then they either accept them or you negotiate them or um, sometimes they're set. You know, sometimes it's the, the project say, well, here's the hourly rate that we have budgeted for and here's the not to exceed amount so it's kind of like you either sign up for it or you don't so it's it really depends so it's all in that rfp so if you wanted to go for a you know go after um a a project which you know we spend it's a lot of time too to put these together with no guarantee you're going to get it um so but it's that's the that's the charm of it so, that is uh, the charm and i guess the best tip i can give to anyone who's bidding on any business for any big company if you can know when that particular company's fiscal year is ending that might be something that you should be good to know because especially if it's mm-hmm. right near the end because for a lot of these other places they like you said they have a budget of a certain amount and some of them they almost feel like they have to spend it because if they don't spend it mm-hmm. they lose it the next year so for mm-hmm. those if you can know who you're talking with when their fiscal year end is then you can try to see, maybe go for, you know, that's another approach you can try to work with as well, because, you know, they'll have to spend it. Otherwise, they don't want to lose it. Right. So even if that means they have to buy a bunch of stuff that maybe they don't even, you know, oh, we have to buy some new computers for everyone in the department. Well, we got the computers last year. Yeah, but we have to. uh Yeah, it needs an upgrade. So we're going to have to give you a new one this year, which I find very weird, to be honest. But, you know, why would you take it away if you're out of that? That's another tangent that I'm going to not get into as well, because then you're spending for money that you don't really need to spend it on. But anyways, that's my little soapbox for that one there. So excellent there. Hourly, best way to go for that one. All right. And final question before we get to more of the fun stuff here. What is your best strategy to deal with difficult clients? Mm. Um, I think people just got to listen. And it's really the the theme. People want to be heard and, um, and really asking questions to find out what the real concern is and then narrowing in on that and identifying actions that can be taken to address that concern. You know, what is it worth? And, and having an open mind or a beginner's mind, you know, the people are coming to, you know, people have all kinds of challenges that they're dealing with in their life and it may be about you or not, but really listening and asking questions uh, and then narrowing in on what can be done to address those concerns have you ever had to kind of like fire a client 
Um, really lucky that no, we haven't had to. We- Knock on wood. Let's hope that, that I don't want to just jinx it right there. <laughs> because I think a lot of people too is that they, you know, they feel like, especially in the beginning, they want to land someone. But then sometimes I feel like I try to tell some owners, you don't have to get everybody's right. Just because they show slight interest in your product or service, you don't have to get them because if they're a pain just to try to land them, can you imagine the pain is to maintain them? Right. So you have to be very careful with who you do business with, whether that's kind of pre-screening, pre-screening them just to find out, are they the right fit for you? It's not just that, can they give you the money that you want, but how easy is, is the relationship going to be? If it's going to be very contentious, and, and we talked about it before, where if you had toxic people in your, work, in your team, do you want that toxic client? I guess not, right? So, Yeah, absolutely. And I think that goes back to just dreaming up your ideal clients so that you see them when they come. Exactly. And then you work and you put your effort into that. Oh, absolutely. So, all right, let's have some more fun stuff here. So what is your personal story that you're more than welcome to tell us, Melanie? My personal story? What you're allowed to tell us, yeah. Um, well, um, I'm, I'm really passionate about being outside. I love to um, hike and camp and um, bike and be near the ocean. Um so really, you know, my goal is to to make sure that I have a balanced life so that I can enjoy all those things as much as possible. We're, we're really close to the Santa Cruz Mountains, which I'd love to go up there and um, and just be in nature and, um, you know, cherish, cherish those things. So that's really my my personal story in terms of what's important. To Excellent. Me. Oh, that, that's good to hear. And, and how was your family when you said to say, I'm going to go start my own? I'm going to start my own practice because for some family, they or family and we'll say loved ones in general, whether it's family, friends, whoever, there's some that are going to be either really supportive, some that might be like, really, or they, they, try, they try to implant the fear or the doubt in your mind. So how was your, uh, when you started your company altogether, how sure. were your loved ones views on that? Um, very supportive. Um, I, I, this was always kind of something I wanted to do. I wanted to have an organization that I ran and started. And for me, it was a natural step. That was always my goal. So when it was came time to do it, um, I started I started a couple companies before, like back when I was in college that did never went anywhere. So I had some, ex- some experience before I started this company. Um, so it was a natural ne- next step. Uh, but planting the seed, because it was, I, you know, it was 10 years in the making already, but when I was, when I finally launched, it was a natural next step and I got a lot of support. So I'm really lucky. No, that, that's great, actually. And, and it's, it's funny, people say, oh, especially if it's someone's first business, they feel like they have to succeed or, or whatever. You know, my first business was, Melanie? What's that? My first business, I used to do martial arts when I was a kid. I used to teach family and friends martial arts, like a specific style. Right. And I was, you know, I was like, what, 10, maybe 12 years old. That was my first entrepreneurial venture. And I was trying to sell people at either five. And I was, and, and I was making it personal. Like, I'm going to go to your house and teach your kids martial arts. And I had this thing where it's like, I, I'm going to go to your thing and I'm going to charge you $5 a class. And, and I said, you know, my big kick was, or you can have a lifetime subscription of here, here's the here's the fee, Melanie. I was going to charge family and friends if they want a lifetime of martial arts training, twenty five dollars. 
Can you imagine trying to sell lifetime training for $25 when you're 10? You, I didn't have the concept of money, right? Hey, got to start somewhere. Got to start. I, I think a lot of them signed up for the lifetime thing. Hopefully they're not trying to see it. We have no contract, so we're not, not going to get me on that. But I think they were just trying to help out because, you know, your family, your friends, you're just trying to help someone out. So $25. So, yeah, don't start $25, anybody. That's my last thing. So, all right. Last question before we get to the rapid fire round here. What is your best tip for, you kind of touched upon it already, where you kind of like being near the, uh, being outside. What is your best way to actually work-life balance it? Because a lot of owners, they're going to work like almost like 80 hours in the beginning and, you know, working mm-hmm. crazy hours. So how, what's your best tip on how to really establish that work-life balance? Mm. Developing systems so that you don't have to do everything yourself. No, number one. Hands down. Uh, so when I say that, what I mean is, to, you know, when you have a, a, a small organization, you have to figure out how you're going to get all these things done. And it can't be you that does it all. So writing things down, how do we do this? What's the process? What are the steps involved? Having all that written down so that someone else can step in and do those. So that's really that simple. And I think that is the difference between a, a good company and an extraordinary company is just Everyone is in agreement about how we get things done. Now it's time for the rapid fire round. Nice. All right. So, all right, let's have some funny stuff. Let's have the rapid fire round here. Some nice relaxed questions and stuff like that. But it's only one business question on this fast rapid fire round. Okay. What is the funniest story that you've had running your business? What is the funniest story? Um... What is the funniest story? Uh, um, I would say the funniest story is I can't necessarily point to anything specific, but I, I guess it kind of c- comes back to uh, what I talked about with systems, you know, so writing things down and and to create a result sometimes. You know, you have good intention of what something is going to do. And then it ends up creating a completely different result. <laughs> and everyone's on the same page about how it was supposed to go and then can just blow up in your face. So I would, I would say that that's probably, uh, those those can create a funny scenario. if Because a lot of it is trial and error, you know. You kind of have to do things in order to figure out what works. And and, and the when, when things don't work, uh, that can can create funny situations. Huh, fun. and it's funny too because I'll tell, I'll tell one little story from a previous podcast guest where he was uh, a mascot builder. Like he creates all a bunch of mascots that you see that nowadays. So one of his one of the projects he's one of the, his themes was was attention to the little things. And and he gave me this story and he was telling me that he was making this costume for I don't know if you're familiar with Babar. It's a it's a cartoon for kids. Oh yeah. So he created a Babar costume that was going to be going out to all these different places. And they had the whole design. They they had this. So he had he made the costume for them, and he got the head for it. And I guess in the scene or in the TV intro, there's like some stairs that Babar walks down. Well, apparently, what happened was he forgot to put a chin strap on one of on one of the the mascot heads. Ooh. That when the person was going down the stairs, it fell off and rolled down the stairs in front of all the kids. Right. <laughs> 
So little things like that, knowing the details. But that that's, you know, shout out to Eugene Ponell for Ponell Studios, who's been a lifelong friend. I, I had to replay play, play that story. That was a very funny one. So, all right, back to you then, uh, Melanie. All right. What would the 15-year-old self imagine you'd be doing right now? Mm. Kind of what I'm doing. Kind of running, you know, running a company and um, living my best life, being near the water. Uh, yeah. Uh, well, there was a point at which I wanted to be an interior designer. That was my big thing. And I did that for a little bit and realized that I wasn't, Picking blue and red options just wasn't for me. Um, so, but I think running a, running an organization would definitely be uh, kind of my thing. But sure. funny you should mention, Molly, because before I really looked into your company, when I first saw the email saying, you know, oh, it's integrated design or something, I was like, oh, she's an interior designer. And then I I go to the website. And I'm like, that's just not an interior designer at all. So yeah, no, integrated design is actually a process that you undergo to make a project green or sustainable. Oh, process. Yeah, yeah. like an industry term. Yeah, I, I looked. At it, I was like, oh, you must know. But it's, it's funny to hear that. Okay, <laughs> the next day. All right, all right. If you can have your own sandwich, what would be in it, and what would it be called? Mm. Well. I don't eat gluten and I don't eat dairy. So my sandwiches are always very high maintenance order. So I would say <laughs> a chicken sandwich with dairy-free cheese, all the veggies, and a lot of spicy sauces with gluten-free bread. And that what would it be? called Melody's Master Beef. There we go. Put it on a t-shirt. That's what I like to hear. All right. <laughs> Couple of the next question. All right. What world record do you think you could break? Or even create. Uh, good question. Uh, I'm going to go back to the systems. I think world record for how many systems that you can have in your organization. Wow, we have systematized everything. Yeah. <laughs> Love it. That's. I'm kind of curious how Guinness is going to try to track that, but good to know. Excellent. <laughs> We need the system checklist somewhere, so you need to actually show us all the different systems. All right. Second last question here. All right. This can be controversial, Melanie. I want to brace yourself. Toilet paper, over or under? Wait, what? I'm not sure what that question means. How do you hang toilet paper? Do the sheets go over the roll or under the roll? Apparently, some people are really, there's really hard, heated debates over those things. I didn't know that was a thing, but... Okay, well, maybe over. Yeah. Gotta defend it. Why? Yeah. Um, I think it slips less, right? Slips less. Hmm. Interesting. I'm, Just a guess. Yeah, I always say under because I find when, especially those Costco sized toilet paper rolls, Sometimes when you try to pull it from the top, it always rips. And all of them because it's just so thick, that's probably why. So it's like, I find it when you, from underneath, it seems to be easier. But anyways, that's another thing altogether. Okay, last question here, Melanie, here. What is, and I ask this to all the guests, what is your theme song and why? So if you're walking into your office, you're walking down the street, that song hits, people know that Melanie Jacobson is coming. Um, gosh, uh... Maybe this girl's on fire. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Excellent. I like that one. I've had 
Interesting. This girl is on fire. Not literally, but that's a, that's a good thing yeah. to hear. It's a good thing. <laughs> so, anyways, Mani, is there any other last tips or tricks that uh, or that you can give to people who are wanting to start their own venture, whether it is in your space or not? What's the best tips you can mm-hmm. give? You know, um, just learn. Invest in yourself. Invest time into learning and growing that is the number one and don't think you need to have all the answers because i don't have all the answers asking the right questions is always is going to be the way to success um and and you know if you want to be in an industry whether it's environmental or otherwise get in the conversation find out what the best people in that industry are doing and go listen to them or listen to them online or go to where they're talking or just do whatever it takes to get there. If it, if your heart, if, it, if you're passionate about something, follow your heart and get yourself there. Just show up because it will happen. It, it will work out. Just have to be super committed to that as a possibility. Oh, that's great to hear. And, and where can people reach out to, to get a hold of you? So um, id360.green is our website, and that's where we have all of our um, information about our website and information about our company and also our training courses. We have some free courses on there if you're interested at id360.academy. So you're welcome to sign up and take some of those uh, free courses. Um, And then um, you can find me on LinkedIn, Melanie Jacobson um, with id360. And yeah, love to um, stay in touch. All right, Melanie, thanks for being on the show. Thank you very much. So just as that was our interview with Melanie Jacobson of ID360. Now you can hear that Melanie is very, very intelligent. And when it comes to this particular space, there's a lot of nuggets that we heard out of there. But I always try to tame it down to a couple of different things. And the first thing I, I remember listening to in this episode when I was listening to this is always remember that, especially if you're trying to bring people on board, be very wary of their technical abilities, which is also very important really trying to find the best people and there are good people, right? Because you heard some behavior you can't teach. For example, you she used the example, you can't teach someone to be a good person. Either they are or they aren't. So when you're looking at someone, not to say that, you know, as long as they're super nice people and that's all that matters, you got to find that balance between their technical ability, but also what they bring from a personality standpoint. Because remember, you bring them in, they're going to affect your, your company culture. And, if, like I mentioned in the episode, that if you can have the smartest person who's technically sound, but if they're a toxic person, to do you really want that in your company? And I don't think you want it because it's going to affect everything because they may be good in certain ways, but then if they reduce the productivity of you know a bunch of staff that you have, then I don't know if it's really worth it. So find that right balance between technical ability and personality. Uh, you know, having someone who's coachable is obviously very important. And I guess the second thing that, that comes to mind when I saw when I was listening to this episode was really listening. Right? I think we have the, the, the guy, not the guy, I think what a lot of people like to do is they think they know what the problem is and then they push their product or solution or service onto it. Really try to hear what the the prospect is really having an issue with. And then using that really then do you know which solution that should be you should be pushing forward or at least telling them why they should invest in your company 
because they you have the solution that they can that, to the problem that they have. So listening is also very, very important. So, all right, guys, that's that. That's it for today. Um, I hope you enjoyed the episode. I enjoyed recording it, and I'll see you on the next one.